Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Awesome Things We Did Not Expect. It's for the Sunday, November 30th, 2008, the first Sunday in Advent. I think it was Stanley Hauerwas of Duke University who somewhere wrote that Christians have forgotten how to beg. But you could never say that about Isaiah the prophet or Asaph the psalmist. They definitely knew how to beg. The greatest debacle for Jews in the Old Testament was why God had given them over to their pagan enemies Assyria and Babylon, who both had vanquished them. Assyria in 722 B.C., in Babylon in 586 B.C. Isaiah cries in chapter 64, verse 11, Our holy and glorious temple has been burned with fire, and all that we treasure lies in ruin. How long must Israel wait for God's mighty acts of deliverance? Had they not become a mockery to their neighbors? Asaph begs God to save his people and complains that, me, that he has made them, quote, drink tears by the bowlful, end quote. Psalm 80, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah's elegant poetry wistfully recalls the long-gone days when God had wielded his glorious arm of power and Moses had led the exodus from Egypt that humiliated Pharaoh. But in his own day, Isaiah could only wonder, quote, Where are your zeal and your might? We all shrivel up like a leaf. You hide your face from us. <clears throat> and so Isaiah and Asaph beg God to prove himself by visible demonstrations of power. Hear us. Shine forth. Awaken your might, come and save us, restore us, return to us, look down from heaven and see us, revive us, O Lord Almighty. Psalm 80. <coughs> Isaiah dispenses with all nuance and subtlety. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Isaiah 64 verse 1. He cajoles God to come down like fire to tinder that causes water to boil and to, and to perform, quote, awesome things we did not expect, end quote. Sometimes there's a painful disconnect between what we fervently pray for and what we actually experience. Praying to God for mighty acts of deliverance is an entirely human, in genuinely Christian response to the suffering of the world. I intend never to stop praying for God's miraculous intervention. Those prayers remain a staple of my morning walks. Who would not beg God to rescue Congo and Zimbabwe from the dark forces ravaging those lands? What parent doesn't lay awake at night praying that their kids make it home safely from a party? Who wouldn't beseech God when they see a police car pull into their neighbor's driveway? And so, with 
Asaph and Isaiah, we beg God, Lord, wake up, come down. The season of Advent adds an important nuance to those prayers. God is not our cosmic concierge. Human experience belies the delusion and pious happy talk so deeply embedded in the American sense of entitlement that the gospel solves every problem and answers every question. No, instead, God offers us a way to live without answers to questions and with problems that don't disappear. Advent reminds us that sometimes we must wait and that God acts in his own time, in his own ways, and for his own reasons. After 20 years as a professor at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard, the Catholic priest Henry Nouwen moved to a home in Toronto for the severely handicapped called Daybreak. The temptation of Jesus to turn stones into bread, said Nouwen, is the temptation to be relevant. In other words, to do something concrete about the world's sufferings. He writes, Oh, how I have often wished I could do that, walking through the young towns on the outskirts of Lima, Peru, where children die from malnutrition and contaminated water. I would not have been able to reject the magical gift of making the dusty stone-covered streets into places where people could pick up any of the thousands of rocks and discover that they were croissants, coffee cakes, or fresh-baked buns, and where they could fill their cupped hands with stale water from the cisterns and joyfully realize that they were drinking delicious milk. And so now and begs God, like Isaiah and Asaph, Oh God, split the heavens and come down. Prove yourself. Do something. At Advent, though, we wait. Even though Costco displayed their seasonal merchandise in October, Christmas is still a long way off. The winter solstice will envelop us in the longest night in the shortest day of the year. Leaves will fall and grass will fade to brown. So we enter a season of waiting. In God, writes Isaiah in 64, verse 4, acts on behalf of those who wait for him. In the epistle this week, Paul sounds the same note, commending, commending the Corinthians for, quote, eagerly waiting for our Lord Jesus to be revealed, 1 Corinthians 1.7. And in the gospel this week, Jesus says, no one knows the day or hour when God will act, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son of Man. Mark thirteen thirty-two. Jesus compares our situation to servants who wait for their master who's gone on a long journey without saying when he'll return. Our task is to remain vigilant and to watch. Mark thirteen thirty-seven. <clears throat> Patient waiting is not an excuse to avoid helping those whom we can help. But there will always be plenty of unresolved heartaches this side of heaven that require us to cultivate endurance, confidence, and hope through waiting.
We wait in patience, knowing that not every act of God resounds like a pounding sledgehammer. In Isaiah's metaphor, God does not always split open the heavens. Whereas even his closest disciples long to call down fire from heaven and to brandish their swords, Jesus compared his coming kingdom to tiny mustard seeds and to the imperceptible but certain fermentation of yeast. In his classic Advent hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, 1868, Philip Brooks, a university preacher at Harvard, where today a house is named after him, described the discipline of patient waiting for the invisible kingdom that emerges bit by bit. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Some first century Jews longed for a powerful leader to rout the oppressive Romans. God did answer their prayers, but in a manner that was easy to miss. Instead of military might, he sent a baby born in a barn. And so at Advent we reenact their watching and waiting their prayers and longings, alert to God's whisper as well as his shout, begging with Isaiah and Asaph, Restore us, O Lord Almighty. Make your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. And for further reflection, where in your life do you wait for God to act? What obstacles challenge you to patient and confident waiting? Can you identify clear instances where God acted definitively yet silently, almost imperceptibly? And how might Advent cultivate in us a healthier discipline of waiting? And then two scriptures. Consider the saints who, according to Hebrews 11.13, did not receive what had been promised. They received something far different, we read in Hebrews 11.35-39. Others were tortured, some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And finally, consider the critics who mocked early believers in Second Peter 3, verse 4. Where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning. For books this week, I review Jane Mayer, The Dark Side, <clears throat> the inside story of how the war on terror turned into a war on American ideals. New York, Doubleday, 2008. 392 pages.
The first Sunday after the September 11th attacks, Dick Cheney appeared on Meet the Press and described how the Bush administration would respond. He said, quote, We'll have to work sort of the dark side, if you will. We've got to spend time in the shadows in the intelligence world. A lot of what needs to be done here will have to be done quietly, without any discussion, using sources and methods that are available to our intelligence agencies. End quote. Cheney wasn't kidding. In the panic and paranoia that engulfed the Bush administration after the September 11 attacks, Cheney decided that the end of national security justified any and all means. Jane Mayer reconstructs in meticulous detail how Cheney and his closest aides legalized torture as American public policy. There were noble administrators administration people who demurred and dissented, but virtually all of them were marginalized. A very small war council acted in secrecy to actively exclude all naysayers and normal processes of checks and balances. David Addington, John Yu, Tim Flanagan, Alberto Gonzalez, and Jim Haynes. These highly partisan ideologues, a weak president, and interagency rivalry and dysfunction created the perfect storm. According to Human Rights Watch, more than 600 U.S. military and civilian personnel were involved in abusing more than 460 detainees. What the public has seen and heard about Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib are only the tip of the iceberg. The Bush administration boasts that its torture program has been worth the intelligence it gathered, but that's far from clear, according to Mayer. Furthermore, seven years after the attacks of September 11th, not a single terror suspect held outside of the U.S. criminal court system has been tried. This is a tragedy in itself because many of these detainees deserve to be punished, but such prosecutions become impossible when evidence was gathered by torture. And so now America holds hundreds of detainees that it can't prosecute, that it can't very well release, and that it can't reasonably hold forever without charges. In spurning the last nearly universal moral taboo of torture, America's reputation among its allies has been badly sullied. Canada, for example, placed the United States on its list of rogue nations that torture. Our enemies have been enraged and emboldened. Our own military personnel can expect similar treatment. Cheney was careful to pass legislation that granted himself and his colleagues retroactive legal immunity, which is an explicit acknowledgement of what nations around the world have already concluded that America's highest government officials are liable for prosecutable war crimes. Such prosecution will not happen at home, but as Philippe Sands has argued in his own book, Torture Team, those responsible for legalizing torture ought to be very careful about traveling overseas. As I write, Jane Mayer's book has been named as a finalist for a National Book Award. Jane Mayer, The Dark Side, the inside story of how the war on terror 
turned into a war on American ideals. For film this week, I review Taxi to the Dark Side, 2007. <clears throat> on December the 5th, 2002, an Afghan taxi driver named Dilawar was taken to America's detention facility at the Bagram Air Force Base. Five days later, he was dead. At first, the military said that he had died of natural causes, but in a later inquiry, the coroner testified that his lower body had been quote-unquote pulpified. On his death certificate issued by the military, the box marked homicide was checked. Taxi to the Dark Side won an Academy Award as Best Documentary for, portray for portraying detainee abuse and torture at the Bagram Air Force Base, Abu Ghraib, in Guantanamo. According to the film, there are at least 83,000 detainees in U.S. custody. Over 108 of them have died, at least 37 by homicide. This film interviews the military police who, who interrogated Dilawar. Genuine heroes in this story, like Alberto Mora, general counsel to the Navy from 2001 to 2006. It incorporates grotesque still photos that rightly shock the conscience. In commentary by investigative reporters, in attorneys. If you think that this film exaggerates, or if you still believe that American torture consisted of some isolated incidents by a few bad apples and was not the official public policy engineered by our top officials, then read the books by Philippe Sands, Torture Team, and Jane Mayer, The Dark Side. The title of the film, Taxi to the Dark Side. 2007. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem for Advent. It's by Daniel Berrigan, the Jesuit priest, born in 1921. The title is Advent Credo. Advent Credo by Daniel Berrigan. <clears throat> It is not true that creation and the human family are doomed to destruction and loss. This is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is not true that we must accept inhumanity and discrimination, hunger and poverty, death and destruction. This is true. I have come that they may have life, and that abundantly. It is not true that violence and hatred should have the last word, and that war and destruction rule forever. This is true. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting, the Prince of Peace. It is not true that we are simply victims of the powers of evil who seek to rule the world. This is true. 
To me is given authority in heaven and on earth, and lo, I am with you even until the end of the world. It is not true that we have to wait for those who are especially gifted, who are the prophets of the church, before we can be peacemakers. This is true. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall have dreams. It is not true that our hopes for liberation of humankind, of justice, of human dignity, of peace, are not meant for this earth and for this history. This is true. The hour comes, and it is now, that the true worshippers shall worship God in spirit and in truth. So let us enter Advent in hope, even hope against hope. Let us see visions of love and peace and justice. Let us affirm with humility, with joy, with faith, with courage, Jesus Christ, the life of the world. Advent Credo by Daniel Berrigan Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the first Sunday in Advent. November 30th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.